This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on Refugee Women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says Survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This week, we continue our series on refugee women with the second half of my conversation with Colby College Professor of Anthropology, Catherine Besteman. She spent her career studying Somali society, both in Somalia and here in Maine, where many Somali refugees have resettled. Last week, we talked about the reasons that Somalis had to flee their homes during that country's civil war in the 1990s, commonly entering refugee camps in Kenya. This week, we'll be talking about what life is like when they arrive in the United States, and specifically how refugees have been building new lives in Lewiston, Maine. I began this part of our conversation by asking Catherine to give an overview of what happens first when people get resettled here. So being selected to be resettled in the United States is an extensive process. People apply. They have to be given a particular legitimation by UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. They receive that acknowledgement. They can apply to be resettled. They're put through, um, when Somalis and Somali Bantus came here, they were the most scrutinized people ever accepted in the history of the United States. They were subjected to so many background checks over multiple years. Some people waited eight years for their background checks to be complete, to be allowed to get on a plane and come to the United States. So when a refugee is finally accepted, and I should say say only 1% of people who live in refugee camps are resettled. Only 1%. It's a ever. Ti- ever. Right. Ever. Not just to the U.S., but in the world. Right. Only 1% are referred for resettlement. So it's a, it's a minuscule number of people that we're talking about. So once a refugee then goes through all those background checks and, um, and is accepted for resettlement, um, they are put in a plane. They don't often have any choice where they go. And they arrive to the United States in the destination predetermined for them by the U.S. government in debt because they have to pay back the cost of their airfare. And so, and so they arrive here with nothing already in debt. Already in debt. So you can have a family of five or six people who arrives six or $10,000 in debt from the moment they set foot on land. So that's the context. They, they're given, a, I think, about a six-month grace period before they're supposed to start paying it back. So when a family lands, a refugee family lands, they're met at the airport by a resettlement agency, um, and that resettlement agency is responsible for settling them into housing, getting the kids enrolled in school, and hopefully setting them up with some sort of job training program, job skills program, or at least with a career center, a local career center who can help them then begin the process of finding a job. And for adults who don't speak English, um, get them set up with um, English as a second language classes. And then the responsibility of the resettlement agency to the resettled family ends within three months. A family can qualify. Three months. Three months, right. So 
A family can qualify for refugee resettlement assistance, which amounts to a few hundred dollars a month for a few months after that. And then they can qualify for food stamps. Um, they can, if they meet appropriate um, requirements, they can qualify for TANF. In Maine, of course, that ends after five years. So you have a family who arrives here. Um, many Somali and Somali Bantu refugees are illiterate in their own language. They do not speak English. They do not, you know, read or write in English. And the children um, in many families have never attended school, and certainly adults, many of them, have never attended school. The expectation that within six months they are to be self-sufficient, capable of not only paying for their rent and their food and all of the other costs, utilities associated with living in the United States, but also paying back the perhaps the $10,000 debt that they've arrived with. It is unconscionable and unrealistic. So that means from the moment somebody arrives in the United States, they immediately begin worrying about money, desperately worrying about money. And as the various supports that they are given upon arrival wither and are retracted, um, they're left completely on their own to learn English while working a full-time job. That's going to support their families and covering all of their own expenses. It's a context that, in my opinion, would make anybody um, depressed, <laughs> anxious, um, compounding traumas that people have arrived with. And so it's an enormous barrier that people face. It's the beginning of their journey in some way. We imagine they have they are now in a context of rescue. They've entered refuge. Things are fine. And what I'm trying to say is things are very far from fine. Um, the traumas have shifted. The pressures have shifted. The, the fears and terrors have shifted to how am I actually going to make life work here for my family. And what are the stories that you come across where people are making it work here? How, how, what is the route to making it work? One of the routes to making it work in Lewiston is um, really, really hardworking volunteerism on behalf of community members to take care of and support the most vulnerable among them. So the rise of community-based immigrant-run organizations has been vitally important in Lewiston. So organizations that immigrants themselves found to take care of each other, to provide everything from translation services to chauffeuring to job skills training to helping people you know, apply for um, things like driver's licenses to giving citizenship classes to giving ELL classes, um, women pooling resources to take care of each other's kids while they either look for work or attend ESL classes. Lots and lots and lots of community support structures that um, immigrant community members volunteer their time for to try to make a go of it, to try to enable the community to sustain itself. That has been critically important in Lewiston. So the picture that you're painting for me is far from the one that gets the, the fearful sort of specter that gets described sometimes in the media. We're not talking about a group of people who end up as dependents on the state, as sort of like leeching off, you know, state resources. Far from it. What I'm hearing you say is that, in fact, on top of all the stresses of surviving and learning another language and supporting yourself, that refugees are also volunteering massive amounts of time to support each other and are essentially models of community service. Massive supports of time, models of community service. Absolutely, that is what I'm saying. Catherine, I first found you because you were a co-author on a very brief but really useful and informative document about the actual facts about what refugees do and do not 
cost or contribute to our communities mm-hmm. financially. Tell me a little bit about what that piece is and what led to its genesis. So, yes, thank you for asking about that. It was a, it was a project I did with Ismail Ahmed, um, who was at the time living in Lewiston. He's since relocated elsewhere. Um, and our goal was to, in the midst of all of this swirling rhetoric about what refugees cost Maine, um, the threats refugees pose to Maine, uh, we decided, okay, well, let's actually look at what the facts are. And can you maybe give me like the most salient, the key finding from all of that research? All the myths and claims about refugees were wrong. <laughs> That's sort of the most salient. They're not criminals. They weren't drawing welfare at higher rates than anybody else. One of the claims is that they're using up all the public housing. And so um, we looked at you know the different kinds of public housing available and who was using it up. They're not using up public housing in, in greater uh, proportion to their demographic representation in Lewiston than anybody else. Um, I mean, just it, literally every single claim made about refugees' overuse of resources, um, over uh, abundance in the criminal justice system is just plain wrong. So important to know that. So really, the facts support an entirely different vision of who refugees are in our communities and the contributions that they bring. Right, which isn't to say that they aren't also using TANF and, and, and Section 8 housing and um, et cetera at the same rate everybody else is. Of course they are. The surprise, I think, is that they weren't using more of it. They should be using more of it. They're entitled to it. You know, It's something that they need. And so the idea that somehow we bring refugees here and then they become a burden is completely misplaced. And the amount of volunteer hours, the amount of investment in the community that especially community members who have English skills and literacy skills and community members who have jobs um, offer to those who lack those things is, is unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable. I cannot tell you how hard people work on behalf of their own community members to ensure that people are making it. These are the very people on which our communities depend throughout this country. It's so, so true. So it makes the world go around in a way. Yeah, yeah they are absolutely the revitalizing force of many small communities around the country. Tell me how you see that. Well, you take a community like Lewiston, um, for example, um, or, you know, the state of Maine. Maine is an aging population. Young people um, who are born and raised in Maine, uh, many of them leave, and they they don't come back here to live. And so Maine, like a number of other states, um, is facing, I think, some challenges about uh, our own sustainability and who are our young people going to be and who is going to be revitalizing business, uh, maintaining our you know, schools, etc. So when you look at Lewiston, what you see now is that children of refugee parents are between 20 and 25 percent of the school body. I mean, that is the youth generation of Lewiston. And so investing in them is absolutely critical. Um, you look at you know, just to name something that happened recently that was very exciting, the soccer team, Lewiston High School soccer team, won the state championship. It is a soccer team predominantly of children of refugees. Actually, eight of the members of the soccer team are from the same refugee camp in Kenya. And these are young men who uh, have come up through the support and the investment 
of the immigrant-founded community organizations that built soccer programs for them throughout their childhood. They could not participate in Lewiston Parks and Rec because they couldn't afford it. And so the young men and women of their own communities created soccer leagues that were free, donated their time and money to coaching them, to refing, to driving them all over New England so they could play other soccer teams um, throughout the year. So that by the time these young men got to high school, they were excellent soccer players. That's the community members that made that happen, which isn't to say that the support that they got from Lewiston High School wasn't also significant. Of course it was. But the point is that the reason they were able to take the state championship was as much because of the support they got from their own community members who did all of that on a volunteer basis. Also, you go to downtown Lisbon Street in Lewiston and look at the number of Somali-owned businesses. Um, Somalis are uh, are running all kinds of um, classes for community members. They're um, running job skills training programs. They're running literacy classes and citizenship classes. They're also um, running things like catering businesses. And uh, There's a really strong entrepreneurial spirit. Very strong entrepreneurial <laughs> yeah. spirit, yeah. 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 Which is so much the foundation of this country. Um, isn't there a documentary film about the soccer team that's coming I out? I saw, yeah, a trailer for it. Yeah, yes, that's right. It's very exciting. We've talked about differences in ethnicity. We've talked about differences in nationality, differences in class. Um, we haven't talked about religion. Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about that. It's such a hot topic, particularly the relationship between the West and Islam mm-hmm. and have you seen examples where religious practice is actually the source of connection? Oh, absolutely. I mean connection between, say, Western white Christian women and Muslim women. It Mm. it can shared religious practice, devotion, be a way that we actually bring people together. Of course. I think that people of faith recognize other people of faith as sharing a similar moral an ethical worldview. And so it, it, it's it's not that faith doesn't matter. Um, you know, the particularities of faith don't matter. But I have often seen mutual recognition um, between, say, Catholics and Muslims, um, uh, people who are of faith. The former mayor of Lewiston, Larry Gilbert, is a case in point. Um, he's a practicing and devout Catholic, and he has often spoken publicly and privately about the importance of faith for community, the importance of faith, not Catholicism, but faith, being people of faith, mutually recognizing each other as people of faith, Um, the importance of communities of faith to provide hospitality, welcome, um, embrace of of others. Uh, I've also met young people in Lewiston uh, practicing Muslims who are interested in attending Catholic universities because they want to be um, at a university defined by faith. It's an environment in which they feel comfortable. So the specificity of Islamic faith versus Catholic faith is less important than being people of faith, that recognizing that faith is an important component of one's life. Are there ways that you see Muslim women from Somalia in Lewiston suffering from discrimination more because they may be more publicly marked? I think that was quite true in the early years of settlement, where it was very common. Every Somali woman I know 
um, was uh, verbally harassed on the street. It was very, very common for women walking down the street, women in public, to be yelled at. Um, and, you know, everybody in Lewiston knows the taunts, you know, go back to your own country, dress like an American. Um, those were those were sort of standard daily experiences. I remember one friend, a Somali friend of mine, who didn't speak English when she arrived. Um, she would go about doing her shopping. People would be yelling things at her. She had no idea what they were saying, and she kind of wondered if maybe they were being friendly. And when she finally gained enough English to realize what people were yelling at her, she was she was astounded. I mean, she was she said to me, why did they bring us here if they don't want us? I mean, she could not believe people would yell abuse at her on the street because of the way she dressed. Now, that has, I think, probably disappeared. That doesn't happen any longer in Lewiston. Really? And women more often now remark to me, about how they are complimented on their clothing, how um, non, non-Somali or non-Muslim women will say, oh, you know, your dress is so beautiful. I love the sequins. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that you're, the, the colors that you wear. And so that, that seems to actually more be more normal now. And women dressed in hijab, women dressed in colorful clothing, women dressed in clothing covered in sequins is normative in Lewiston. You know, that's the way Somali women dress. Um, they are perhaps 15 to 20 percent of the population. It, there's nothing abnormal about seeing women dressed like that on the street, in the grocery store, at the pharmacy, at school. It's totally normal. That's so great to hear because in some ways that's, that's so encouraging because it hasn't been that long. That movement from taunts right. to, in some ways, enjoyment of the mm-hmm. beauty and the mm-hmm. color. Mm-hmm. Uh, hasn't taken that long. That, that well, maybe feels like a note of hope. <laughs> I hope so. I do too. So, Catherine, listening to you, I come away with this kind of dual feeling. On the one hand, this very sobering reality about the extent of poverty and the challenges that these people are facing. But also, I sense the extraordinary courage and resilience and um, sense of actually the hope for our future in Maine that these people represent and are bringing to us. And that, um, is that how you, you hold it? Do you hold it as sort of like these feelings that you carry at the same time inside yourself? Um, I think what I'm focused on right now, that's, that's, that's a hard question for me to answer because I, what I'm focused on right now is the rise of xenophobic rhetoric and um, the claims by uh, some people in positions of authority that we cannot accept any more refugees, that refugees are a drag on our state and our economy, they're potentially terrorists, and that's really where my focus lies, trying to understand what that fear, what that xenophobic fear is rooted in and what to do about it. You know, how do you counter somebody who is invested in being afraid of people who are fleeing for their lives, who are fellow human beings? I just don't understand that sentiment, and I don't know how to effectively push back against it. So I think that um, that that's, that's really what I'm focused on at the moment and what I'm obsessed about <laughs> thinking about. I actually saw a TED Talk about the way there's, there seems to be almost a neurological hardwiring between sort of this person's claim was sort of red brains versus blue brains and that uh, the more xenophobic rhetoric, um, you know, so many governors across this country saying we won't take Syrian refugees, for instance, um, it, it seems that when you actually do neuroscience research, uh, there are people who, when you show them pictures that uh, 
have a range of sort of th- pictures that are more threatening versus pictures that are more beautiful or about pictures of you know harmonious interactions their eyes track towards the threat far more you can actually track using eyeball movement tracking towards threat and then other people who track far more to pictures of opportunity and possibility and that where people's eyes orient to is highly correlated with the way that they vote and there seems to be something almost neurological about the degree to which we are fear driven versus kind of opportunity driven and um you know, clinically, I can't help but wonder how much that has to do with, you know, early environmental experiences mm-hmm. about fear and difference. Um, it was sobering to me in that it's hard to rewire our brains. Um, but is it? You know, I mean, as an anthropologist, we're, we're very inclined towards trying to understand the relationship between the individual and the social, the individual and the community. And one of the things that Uh, we focus on often is the ways in which social norms shape people, the ways in which people are produced as individuals, as persons, through their social engagements, through their social environments. And so the tiny little bit of neuroscience that I'm familiar with, and I will stress a tiny little bit, also suggests the ways in which our brains are shaped by our social context and our social environment. I mean, one of the major lessons of anthropology is we can learn and unlearn things. And we do learn and unlearn things all the time. So I'm always really resistant and, I dare say, hostile (laughs) to the idea of being hardwired for anything. I just don't think, except for maybe eating fat, but other than that, (laughs) I don't think we're really hardwired. Yeah, Mm -hmm. our bodies crave fat, and that's evolutionarily a a thing. But... um, but I guess I, I, I always push back against the idea that our brains are hardwired in these socialized ways. And I, I want to insist, and indeed it's sort of what keeps me alive, that human beings can always learn new things. Human beings can always change their minds. Human beings can always rethink their assumptions and question what they take for granted. And so that person whose eyes are kind of shifting towards what they are afraid of, why can't they learn to be afraid of something different? You know, why does it have to be somebody they perceive as foreign? Why can't it be that they're afraid of racism? Why can't it be that they're afraid of xenophobia? It's not to say that being afraid of things isn't human. It probably is. But what we become afraid of is a social construct. I love that. Thank you for saying that, Catherine. It feels so important. When you said that 1% of refugees in refugee camps actually finally get resettled to other places, I had no idea it was that low. And, I, of course, I start wondering, what about the 99%? Mm-hmm. I mean, where do they go? Well, that's a great question. I mean, and that is, in my opinion, the that and climate change are the two major questions of our era. We live in a world where everybody's obligated to be a citizen of a state, right? You are not allowed to be a citizenship-less person. And so the way that we deal with people who are out of place because they've been forced to cross a border involuntarily is by giving them refugee status and then either imagining they're going to eventually go back home or enabling their resettlement um, through a legally authorized mechanism to a third country, or by allowing them to live in limbo 
in cities with refugee status or by herding them into refugee camps and requiring them to live there and not allowing them to leave until the international community comes up with some place for them to go. So currently in our world, there are about 40 million people who live in, um, who, are, who are refugees, who live in refugee camps, who have no other place to go. That's a lot of people. There are a lot more people who are displaced in ways that aren't yet counted. So some of those people have lived in refugee camps now for three generations. Three generations. This is an unsustainable way to run a world. And so the, the outcome of that is, as we are seeing across Europe today, people, refugees, taking their life trajectory, their future into their own hands, and simply refusing to abide by the rules that say you must live in a refugee camp. You are not allowed to determine your own future. These are people who are saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk across countries. I'm going to get on boats and take my chances because life here is unsustainable. I will die if I stay here. Therefore, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to find a secure future for myself and my kids. Um, more and more people are going to be taking that option because when only 1% of people in refugee camps actually get a legal opportunity to be resettled, the expectation that the other 99% will simply wait around to die is unrealistic and it's inhumane and it is not going to happen that way. When you say that people are would be left in a refugee camp to die, is that because food sources are going to run out or because they'll just live until old age and die there because there's nowhere else for them to go? Well, all, about both of those things. So, um, so refugees who live in refugee camps, some of them do get rations. It's not enough to live on. It's starvation level. So people do die in refugee camps of hunger and thirst. People die of diseases. Their um, medical care is often provided by volunteer uh, medical organizations, and some of it is, you know, it's wonderful work that they do, but um, it's only available to a few, and it's not available in all camps, and so diseases do come into camps and wipe out thousands of people. People will die from violence. Refugee camps are violent places. Sexual violence in many refugee camps is absolutely rampant. Local militias enter camps um, and uh, engage in atrocities. Um, criminal gangs can enter refugee camps and engage in atrocities. They are not secure places that sustain human life. They are zones of abandonment and incarceration that leave people to die. And nobody will choose to live in a refugee camp if they can come up with another viable option. You said at the beginning that anthropologists go into communities with ideas, and then they notice what they observe, and then they tell true stories about that. Thank you for telling me these true stories about refugee camps. I, I hadn't pictured it quite in the vivid way you're describing. It's painful to hear. Mm. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to uh, point people to Catherine's book, which is coming out in January, Making Refuge, Somali Bantu Refugees in Lewiston, Maine. And I also want to suggest the documentary about the soccer team in Lewiston is coming out shortly. It's going to be called One Team, the story of the Lewiston High School Blue Devils. 
And lastly, I want to recommend two organizations in Lewiston that are really making a difference. And why don't you tell me what they are? The first one is called the Somali Bantu Community Mutual Assistance Association of Maine. And they sponsor a number of different programs. They sponsor a women's empowerment program, um, part of which uh, helps uh, place women in jobs. And they sponsor an absolutely fabulous uh, farmer program. They've contracted with farmers in rural Maine who uh, have land that they themselves are no longer farming but would like to see farmed, who have invited um, the refugee community to come and create their own farms. And so there's uh, one farm currently in New Gloucester where there's about 45 um, farmers from Lewiston who have their own plots. They are uh, doing magnificent work there, and they do need support um, to because they do not charge the farmers for um, using the land. And so they do need some support for um, paying for the, the overhead, utilities, water, and the seeds, and transport. Um, the other organization is called um, Maine Immigrant and Refugee Services, and it has offices in Lewiston and Portland. It's um, an organization that provides uh, social services and caseworker outreach for refugees and immigrants, um, but it also runs a number of outreach programs, including the soccer programs, as does, does the Somali Bantu Community um, Mutual Assistance Association. Um, Maine Immigrant and Refugee Services also provides citizenship classes, literacy classes, job skills classes, an after-school program, a homework help program, and a tutoring program. It sounds really wonderful. They're Thank fabulous you. organizations. Thank you so much. A last request from me is to ask you to take a moment and go to safespaceradio.com and click on the survey button for this show and give us your feedback. We'd really love to hear from you. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Or you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the earlier series we did a few years ago about Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.